cold feet. So Christmas is amazing. I, lo- I, love, I just love everything about it. And um, I get caught up into it. And, um, and I sometimes get too excited. And Christmas is over before we get to Christmas Day, which um, isn't so good. And then I have to have an influx of energy from my family to, to get me back in the Christmas spirit. But um, I think we're all in the Christmas spirit. We're waiting for it to happen, which is what Advent is about, isn't it? It's about waiting. And we begin to see all the signs of Christmas happening, whether it's snow or whether it's the lights or whether it's your Christmas cards or the presents beginning to build up. They are all indicators. They are all little lights and signs pointing to something bigger as we begin to prepare ourselves. It's funny that we feel like we finish the year with Christmas but really for Christians, it should be where we start the year. We should start from the place of Christmas and heading to the next year with the knowledge and the experience of the good news that Christ came to earth for you and me. I also, um, before I forget, I, w- I was teaching some students at Samuel Ryder School um, on Wednesday, and they said, would you do, um, will you do a shout-out to us? And so before, I-, I wanted to do it at the end, so you stayed to the end and listened to the whole thing, but I'm just going to get it done. So Samuel Ryder, you are very welcome to join us in church. And um, Riaz, you asked me to name-check you, so Riaz, there you go. Big up for Riaz. Let, let me start by reading something. Uh, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their hometown to register. give you a bit of history. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus happened in a moment in time. He was born in a moment in time. So we all know who Julius Caesar is, yeah? Just after then. Julius Caesar gets bumped off, okay? And then his close friends that sort of ran the kind of um, uh, the, the Roman armies, they all started infighting with each other. Mark Antony was kind of one of the main characters of that. And, and he teams up with Julius Caesar's cousin, or second cousin, that Julius Caesar adopts as his son. And, um, and he renames himself Augustus. And Mark Antony loses a battle. And he is so caught up in himself that he takes his own life. So this is all history. This is all happening. And when Mark Antony takes his own life, um, Augustus is left as the kind of sole leader, the main ruler. And there's a little bit of civil war, but basically he takes over. And he deems himself, he calls himself emperor. And the Roman Empire begins to start. And, And he says a few things about himself. He says, let me read it. He says he brings justice and peace to the known world. That's what he announces. And when the Romans went into places, the, 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 the people who lived there would say that Augustus was our saviour and our lord. That's what they would announce. Sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? 
who gets more familiar. See, then Augustus turns around and says, you know Julius Caesar, my adoptive father, he was actually divine, which makes me the son of, son of God. And so there is a stage being set in our history books of the son of God who brings justice and peace, but he's counterfeit. It's not the real thing. And at exactly the same time, so get your history, at exactly the same time that Augustus is doing this, we have this story emerging. Exactly the same time. So when you begin to think about our story and our Christmas and what is happening, it happens as a pivotal moment in history. It isn't just a made-up fairy tale or something you find in this book. Julius Caesar, Mark Antony, Augustus, Jesus is in that space. He is just in Bethlehem being born. Really funny, when he cemented his empire, he does, Augustus does a census to find out what he's really got. He sort of made him the main act. He's taken center stage. And how big is this thing that I have? So he does a census. Everyone tick their boxes. Christian, none. Jesus wasn't born. But we've just had a census, haven't we? Yeah? Do you know what the result was? When they went through, they do it every 10 years. Christianity has been on this gradual decline and then a huge jump in the last 10 years. Only 46% of UK citizens would say they are Christian now. So it's like, and we feel quite sad and aggrieved and we see some of that in our politics and in our education system. We see that, as some papers are saying, we are no longer a Christian country. That's what's being said in some papers. And that's really sad news. It is sad news. But when you dig into it a little bit, what, what is really going on is nominal Christianity, kind of established, you know, state-run church, is, is people aren't going anymore. We're not getting married in church anymore. We're not having funerals in church anymore. We're, those things have gone down. So nominal Christianity is absolutely on the decline. But at the same time, if you looked further into statistics, there is a huge increase in other things. So black majority churches are skyrocketing in the UK. The vineyard movement is church planting. You can't keep up. HDB, they're church planting exactly the same time. And so we see a decline in nominal Christianity. But people who love Jesus and live every day as if his opinion really matters, they're trying to follow his opinion, is on the up. It's amazing. 330 million people ticked the box saying, we love Jesus and we live every day as if his opinion matters. 330 million on our little island. It's incredible. Around the build, if Augustus had done a census and said, how many are there of you? Two million would have ticked the box. Think about that. And on the day when Augustus did the census, there was zero because he wasn't born yet. In 2,000 years, this thing has gone because God came to earth. And just if you were someone that ticked the box, you know, I'm of no religion, I wonder how you feel about Jesus, though. 
because that's what it's about. It's not about attending a building. It's not about going somewhere that's cold and your toes are cold. It is about, do you love Jesus and are you living every day as if his opinion matters? Which you can choose and you can change what box you tick. You haven't set your trajectory. So as we sort of ponder Christmas, do think, where am I really on that? Do I love Jesus and do I live every day as if his opinion matters? We should read on. So, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David. Now get this, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, and she was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. That's so nicely and politely put, isn't it? The time came for the baby to be born. Some of us know it's not like that. And she gave birth to her firstborn, and he was a son. And she wrapped him in cloths, and she placed him in a manger, which we all know, in a wooden feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. And Jesus's hometown, where, 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 where Joseph grew up, where Joseph kicked football with his friends, where he sneaked around their houses after school and, 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 and stole their food, that's where they were going back to. Loads of relatives would have been there, and he would have got, with Mary on maybe a donkey, banging on the doors to his relatives saying, can I come in? Uh, we, we haven't got any room for you. We get told in the translation that they went to an inn, and, um, and people are saying now that wasn't a very good translation. What it would have been would have been um, people's houses. They would live on the second floor, and on the ground floor, there would have been a place for their animals, and then there would be a guest room because hospitality was so big in that culture. And Joseph wasn't just a local. He wasn't a local lad that grew up there and, and all his relatives were there. He was of the line and the house of David. You know, the shepherd boy that became king? Joseph's descendant from them. He should have been let in somewhere, shouldn't he, really? So something is going on that leads you to speculate what was happening, what was going on there. And uh, there's loads of different views. But I wonder if him and Mary and her pregnancy was just a little complicated maybe not accepted by the culture. And so people were like, we don't, we don't want much to do with this. We're just, someone else will deal with this. We don't want this. It was messy, like many of our Christmases get messy, don't they? We, we, who, who do we have around? Who do we see? They're going to get around. So-and-so's going to get trapped. And, and, and so Jesus is born into a space where Christmas is messy. He knows what mess is like. And um, Freya, thank you that you've helped us maybe go against some of that messiness or, or step into the messiness a bit rather than avoiding it. So it, it, it was messy for whatever reason he can't find anywhere really to stay. It's difficult. And so 
Christmas is a bit like a magnifier on that, isn't it? That everything that is normal just is multiplied. So joy is multiplied. Happiness is multiplied. Conflict is multiplied. Selfishness is multiplied. Whatever is sort of at the core, whatever is at the centre of the stage, just gets bigger. And for Jesus, for Joseph and Mary, what is multiplied is quite a lot of difficulty. You could say, actually, maybe there was a little bit of um, shame put on them. Not that two of them had any shame, but maybe people tried to put shame on them. But which is really interesting. It means that Jesus' birth into our world, Jesus stepped in and his first moments were not being accepted, were being turned away, people being suspicious, shame trying to be put on him. And so when we think about our lives, when we think about when we pray and we're struggling with things, we pray to someone whose first moments are someone who is pushed away and not accepted and people just not wanting to step into the messiness of that. And so when you pray, you pray to someone that goes, I get it. I understand. I empathize. I am with you in this. So don't ever think there is a prayer that you can't pray because he gets it, his first moments. In fact, his last moments were exactly the same. He was crucified naked. Again, not his shame, shame put on him. He understands. And I'm um, To think that God may not know what's going on in our world is quite interesting as well. Mark used this word last week that God is omniscient, which is a great RE word we love using. But actually, what it means is God has matchsticks in his eyes. Doesn't it? If he sees and knows all, we can think he's outside of time, but it means he cannot turn away, he cannot blink. He cannot cut it out of his sight. Why did Jesus come? Because God has matchsticks in his eyes. And the children that he loves, that he adores, that are so precious, I can't can't stand back anymore. I must do something. I must step into this messiness and show them another way. And so Jesus comes because God has matchsticks in his eyes. He comes to fix the messiness. He comes to step into the messiness. He comes to be part of our messiness. He sees all already. And so he's fairly familiar with with shame, really, isn't he? He understands it. And so we shouldn't go before him being fearful about the things that are going wrong. In fact, the, the, the real... The fact is that there is no shame before God... In fact, the real shame is that we don't go before God. Does that make sense? That's the problem. Before God, there is no shame. He's seen all and he knows it. The problem is we, the tragedy is we don't go to God in our shame because he's already seen it. He empathizes. Um, And it's really interesting for us, you know, when we fall over, when we make mistakes in our world, worldview, we get back up, don't we? 
But as Christians, when we make mistakes, when we fall, we don't get back up. We cover up, don't we? Keep it hidden. Keep it secret. To a God with matchsticks in his eyes, which is a little bit odd, really, because he's desperate for us to come before him and to be real with who we are. Uh, a student in school asked me last week, they said, why do Christians always talk about sin and shame? Which I'm doing now, I can't help it. And uh, the reason is we're not miserable. The reason is we're not like obsessed with it. The fact is, if, if you, you are mind, body, soul, all together, and if you break a leg, you go and get it fixed, you fix your body. And um, thank goodness now, if you have a mental health difficulty. We now go and talk about it and we get tools to manage it. A lot of my work is helping with that. So we deal with the mind. So there's only one thing left, our soul, our spirit. And are we just going to go around sort of hobbling around with something that we use words like sin to describe? Or do we get it fixed? This, this thing we use sin, it's, it pollutes us. We, we, we have sickness poison in our veins when we do it. it is, um, uh, these are things we learn from Alpha. It pollutes us. It, um, uh, it is powerful. It, it, it once isn't enough. We become obsessed. We get drawn. We become channel, channel vision on that thing. It is powerful. And the worst thing is it creates a partition between us and God. The God that we can close our eyes with, where is he? We're, we, 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 it's like we try and shove him away. There's a barrier we begin to put in the way that, that means that we can't know the peace of God so much. And so sin creates a partition. Um, but Brené Brown goes further. Brené Brown says that um, the idea of, uh, of sin is that I've done something wrong. Shame is when I think there is something wrong with me. God with matched his eyes cannot cope with that. And so he comes to earth to address shame. And he comes in a way that empathizes and goes, I get it. I get it. I know that. Brenny Brown says this. She says that if you put shame in a petri dish and bombard it with empathy, it cannot survive. What did Jesus do? He comes to our world. And he takes shames and he lives it. He bombards it with empathy for you and me. And so take your shame and do something with it. And Jesus even shows us, Paul writes about what Jesus does. Um, in, let me read it to you. In Hebrews 12, he says this, if I can find it. So just a bit of back thing. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's throw off everything that hinders us and easily entangled us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him, you and me, that's why he came with matchsticks in his eyes before the joy before him endured the cross. Get this, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. In the ESV, it says, despising its shame. Too often, people who love Jesus have been held down and held back and held captive because we cover up rather than get up. Our example, our model, 
he despised shame and he empathized with it when he was born throughout the whole of his life and as he died for us to stand before him and say, I know you see me, here I am. And so if you feel that sense sometimes of shame, then get before God or get before your connect group and just say, because if you bombard it with empathy, it has no power. It loses its power. So be brave and get the help we need. Talk to someone. I should move on. So, actually, I'm going to say something else to you first. Uh, salt and pepper, knife and fish and glory and I think honor. We're going to hear a different announcement in a minute. Tell me in a minute what you think is glory and something else. Let me read you something more. So, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do, I can't do the voice. How do you do an angel voice? Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, today, think Julius Caesar, Augustus, at the same time Augustus. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you and he is Christ the Lord. Augustus, no. Jesus, yes. And this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in a cloth and lying in a manger. Pretty clear sign compared to anything else. Then suddenly a great company of heaven's host appears with the angel praising God and saying, interesting thing, it takes one angel to announce he's coming, but it takes an army of heaven to respond to the announcement. So I thought I wouldn't read it. We'd read this all together. We're joining that army. So on the count of three, three, two, one. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those in whom his favour rests. Imagine that for the heavenly host not being contained, not being able to hold themselves back. In fact, just thinking, this doesn't deserve just one angel. This deserves all of us. We're just going to rip apart heaven for a second, peek through, and make sure people realise what has just happened. And then we'll go back in before we get in trouble. <laughs> Glory and peace. There is this kind of symbiotic relationship, salt and pepper, fish and chips, knife and fork, glory and peace. When glory goes up, 
What comes down? Peace. The angels are announcing the status of the way things work. When glory goes up, peace comes down. That's why Christmas has this kind of desire, hope, promise of peace. Because all the lights, all the signs, all the snow push our eyes to give glory upwards. And when we do, peace becomes to come down. So what, what I wanted us to think about is as we, as we think about Christmas, as we think about glory, who, who is really the centre of our stage? What is the centre piece for us? Is it, is it glory to God? Are we, are we closing our eyes and, and when we see snow or when we see mountains or when, when we hear the king's speech, are we just closing our eyes and just giving glory up to God? Are we, are we making big of God? That's what glory means, is to make big of. What, what are we making big of this Christmas? Our extravagant gifts, the fact that we're, 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 we're turning the heating on. What, what are we making glory of? And as you make glory of him, as you big him up, peace comes down. And so if we're struggling with sin, Shame, finances, relatives. Whatever the thing is we're struggling with, the answer is not to fix it ourselves, but to give him glory, allow glory to go up so his peace come down. That is the order of things. That is what the angels are announcing. That is what's happening. And um, I'm, I'm going to about to hit time. So um, the, the story carries on that the, the shepherds, they go and visit the, ba- the baby and they're convinced and they spend time with him and their hearts are moved more than just seeing a newborn child. They're moved because of the immensity of who is before them and that there is the saviour and the lord of the world sitting there. And they leave him and they begin to make big of him. And so what do we learn from this story? What, how does it affect us in our Advent as we give, begin to start next year? Because that's what Christmas is about. What does it mean? Firstly, that we need to spend time with the baby. We need to give him time. We know, need to, to spend time with Christ. And he actually invites us into something. just want to read his words when he grew up after 30 years or so. This is his invite to you. Okay, let me read it out to you. It's in Ma- um, Matthew, let me find it now. Matthew eleven twenty eight. He says this to you. Are you tired? This is our Jesus speaking, his words. Are you worn out? Are you burnt out on religion? If so, come to me. Get away with me and you will recover life. This is his invite to us. I will show you how to take rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do things. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. Don't, I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. That's his invite this Christmas from his book, from his words. So... My question is, if you make Jesus centre stage, 
he will invite you to come and keep company with him. And as your glory goes up, his peace will come down. And then go make big of him. Go tell others about him. Go share what he's done for you. Amen.